0: This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, now we ask that you who have revealed yourself to us through your word would do so through this text. Would you show us the beauty and the glory of our Redeemer? Would you show us ourselves in this story? Would you inform our minds and inflame our hearts and order our steps that we might live in line with the truth of who you are and that you would be glorified? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Don't you imagine that when Matthew showed the first draft of this to uh, whoever was editing and standing by, they looked at him and said, really? This is how we tell the story? And Matthew says, yes, because this is a story. Well, I want to urge you, and I, I hinted at this a moment ago, that every one of these names that I stumble over, that we stumble through together, names that are for the most part, strange to us, if not unknown. Every name tells a story. You know, the story stayed alive as fathers told sons, as mothers told daughters, as families gathered around the fireside at night, as they did their work through the day. They were not entertained the way we're entertained. (laughs) And as they told stories, every name mentioned here was what has a story that went with it. Mom, who is Abinadab? Tell me again. And then the story takes shape, and it's maintained. And that's how it comes to us today. Before we dive into the story, and I hope hear the story that Matthew wants us to hear, to see what he sees, I want to say just a couple of words about the arrangement, uh, what scholars call the literary structure. I've been fascinated for years about how helpful that can be when we come to a passage in the Bible, and we see what the how the author has arranged the material in such a way to help us understand what he's trying to do. Well, we don't have to guess in this case, because in verse 17 he tells us. He tells us in verse 17 what he did for 16 verses. If you look, you'll see it right there. From there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. That's about a thousand years. Uh, There were 14 generations from David to the deportation, the exile, to Babylon. That was about 500 years. There were 14 generations from the deportation to Jesus, about 540 years. And as you see that, you see what he's doing, that he's giving us a sketch of what he wants to see when we look at those first 16 verses. We see a story. Now, to be fair, there's a hole in the story, because a big hole, because there were more than 14 generations between Abraham and David, between David and the deportation, and between the deportation and the birth of Christ. There were more than 14. Matthew's been selective. Just as I'm going to be selective as we go through that, I'm not going to talk about every one of the names here. It'll be some selection. But we'll help you to know, as you heard last week, if you were here, that, that sometimes the word father or begot can mean the ancestor of and so he's tracing the ancestry and not necessarily going generation by generation and if at some point during this sermon you begin to tune out or get lost just consider what I could have done today and that is to tell you every name between Abraham and the birth of the Messiah and we would be here longer than you will be here today <laughs> That could have been the route, but Matthew is selected because he wants you to get a handle on it. The theory is that he has arranged these in fourteens for the for one reason, for the simplicity of memorization. To learn the story. It's easier to remember 14 names than it is 44. So there's 14 names that he highlights as he gives the the, the The throne succession is what he seems to be doing here as compared to Luke's genealogy. It's a little different. The names are different. And Matthew seems to be giving us the throne succession line. That's really what's going on here. But here's the story that he tells. And this is the little simple outline we'll follow today. The story that Matthew tells is a story of power and glory. It's a story of longing and lament. And it's a story that announces that the true King has come. A story of power and glory, of longing and lament, lament, and announcement that the true King has come. And as we make our way through those first 16 verses, the categories are not maybe quite so clean. Because with power and glory is often intermixed struggle and lament. I mean, you know that, right? That's the story that comes at us, a story of power and glory, but it's intermingled with the brokenness of this world that we know very well. But the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is a kingdom established and lost. That is a story of power and glory that's been established that begins to fade away as soon as it comes into being. As soon as it comes into a view, it begins to fade. That's what you're gonna see here in the kingdom (coughs) that's established and then lost. The apex, of course, King David and Solomon right there in the middle of that passage uh, (coughs) where we see that the uh, (coughs) the promise made to David is that he would be king and that's a centerpiece of the story that's being written and told that David was a king in fact of all the kings listed in this genealogy he's the only one identified as a king and Matthew wants you to hear that David the king followed by his son Solomon this is verse 6 and Solomon, you know, was the zenith of it all where the power and the glory and the might and the strength and the wealth, and oh, by the wisdom, by way, the wisdom, was, was, at its, was at its zenith. That was the story that, that was identifying Israel as God's people in the world. That's what it looked like to belong to Yahweh. That's what it looked like to worship him, to serve him, to be his vessels, his instruments. That's what it looked like. But beginning with Solomon's son, it begins to come unraveled with the name Rehoboam. One of the things you'll notice as you you read through, if if you did the extra work of looking up the little bios on all of these, and I did not look up all of them, But you'll see a a, a swing back and forth. There's alternating godly king and wicked king. Godly king, wicked king. Godly, you'll recognize some of these names, some of you. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those were the kings that brought Israel back on track to follow the ways of the one who made them to give glory to Him and to live accordingly. But in our mix, you find names like Manasseh, Jeroboam, those that took the kingdom downhill rapidly, alternating good and king. That was the story as it began to come unraveled. And it got to a point of darkness. There are four names in verse 9: Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There's a name not mentioned there because he wasn't a king, he was a prophet. He's another one that we hear this time of year. Isaiah writing to Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah describes Jesse in the root of Jesse. You'll recognize this from Isaiah 11, and you might look later at Isaiah 11. These words come from Brian Zahn, who's a pastor. He calls himself a full-time pastor and a part-time author at an independent church in Missouri. He writes this about Isaiah. Isaiah begins his Root of Jesse poem with the image of a dead stump representing the royal line of the davidic monarchy a tree that once promised to fill israel with the fruit of righteousness and justice is now just a dead stump the dead stump speaks of the of the deep failure of the davidic dynasty the line began promisingly with king david a man after god's own heart and a recent apex of glory with king solomon but then began to degenerate in the third generation with the egotistical and inept reign of King Rehoboam." Verse 7 of Matthew. And now in its third century, the line of David is a dead stump. Instead of producing the fruit of God's justice, it's just another corrupt monarchy. Glory and power fades into corruption. And it doesn't take long to get there. And it doesn't take much to get there. I mean, think of your own life. How long does it take to get from here to here? <laughs> from when things are clicking, when things are clear, when things are in line and beautiful, and then where you lose your way and you don't know which way is up. That's the story that Matthew is telling, a story of empower and glory that begins to fade quickly into a story that we might call longing and lament. If the first part was a kingdom sought and lost, this is a kingdom remembered. If the first part was a kingdom established and lost, part two is a kingdom remembered and sought. It ends with the deportation. As Israel, you see, went into Babylonian captivity, the prophet Hosea tells Israel that they will be without a Davidic king for many days. This is what Hosea writes in chapter three of his book. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. They are looking for a king, but they are without. One vivid word picture of the longing and lament that marks this people is from Psalm 137, where we read these words, By the waters of Babylon we lay down and wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It was a longing and lament that marked their lives, that shaped their lives, that colored their days, that hemmed them in, that kept them from seeing the beauty and the glory that was once theirs. But then Cyrus, and if you follow the story, Cyrus comes to the throne and he says, okay, it's time to go home. You can go, and I'll pay your way. And in waves, the people of God leave from Babylonian captivity. Not all, all left, but most returned to the land in waves. And as they came, they came back with some expectation. They came back with some dollars. And they came back with permission to relocate, to build what would be called the second temple. And worship was restored and the Word of God was discovered in that process and reinstituted and once again there was hope and there was expectation that maybe, just maybe, those days of glory and power are about to return. It was natural for the people who left a Babylonian exile to return to the land and look for the restoration of the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic dynasty. And hopes were spurred on when Zerubbabel became the governor of the land because Zerubbabel, that is in our list today, served as a governor. He was from the line of David. And the expectations rose again, is this our man? Is the kingdom about to be restored He's hailed in Zechariah as the branch. Zechariah was a prophet at the time, and he refers to Zerubbabel as the branch. And that's a title that Jeremiah had already given the coming prince. Is this our man? And Haggai, writing at that time, describes Zechariah, Zerubbabel sorry, as the one who has received Yahweh's signet ring. So once again, the hope was spurred is Zerubbabel, our man. And following him not long after him is a, is a, is a, pre, is a, is a ruler called Zadok from the line uh, of, the, of the one who served as priest during David's reign. All things are pointing upward. But Zerubbabel never wore the crown of his royal ancestors. But through the returned exiles, the sight of a descendant of David's house acting as governor in Judea was a token. The promises made to that house had not been forgotten. After Zerubbabel though, the house of David passes into obscurity. Centuries were to pass before the promise that Zechariah made began to echo. Zechariah, writing around this time, refers to a Davidic prince. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. But centuries pass. And the second temple was just a pale shadow of the first. And when the people of God saw what it had become, they were more discouraged than they were encouraged. What happens when you combine a story of glory and power with longing and lament? When you you pour glory and power into a bowl, and then you pour longing and lament, and you stir, what do you get? I would propose to you that you get messianic expectations. Is Zerubbabel our man? Turned out not to be. Malachi is writing at this time. Zechariah is writing in this time. Here's what they say Malachi was silent about the royal stream of leadership. He focused instead on priestly and prophetic rulers, in spite of the fact that, as he wrote, when he wrote, that the priesthood was corrupt. But that was his aim. And his supposed trajectory was that a refined priestly group would be created through the actions of a prophetic figure who at first, to the first readers, appeared to be Malachi himself and it turns out to be Elijah. So when the Old Testament closes, it's with the prospect that maybe there's an Elijah who will restore things as the days unfold. Zechariah is writing around the same time, and after he describes the march of a divine warrior taking up residence, the prophet announces the arrival of the royal figure in Zion who will proclaim peace and exercise global rule. And then he introduces a shepherd figure. Those were the to- that was the talk of the day. The Old Testament closes... And before the New Testament opens, there's 400 years of silence. And the stories turn, the hopes twist. What can we expect? If you were to ride your donkey and tie it up outside the Qumran Regional Library during that intertestamental time and gone through the doors and opened the illustrated dictionary, you would have found under the, under the entry Messiah... Five pictures. The first picture was a priestly figure. Think priest. Referenced by talk at the time of someone referred to as the Messiah of Aaron, the first priest of Israel. So entry one is the priestly figure. The second one, the second picture is a prophet. And in the words of writing at the time, a prophet who is to teach righteousness in the end of days. He will come as a teacher. A prophet, see Deuteronomy 18.18. A prophet like Moses will arise. So there's a priest, there's a prophet. The third entry is a royal deliverer. That's the picture. Powerful and glorious warrior who will deliver them from the political oppression of the Gentiles. A king that will restore the Davidic dynasty. And then there was a fourth theory. There's a fourth entry under the word Messiah, and that is one who will be installed to rule following God's deliverance from Roman rule. God will be the deliverer and He will set up someone, a human figure, to reign and rule in His place. There was one more definition, one more entry under Messiah. Messiah, a mythical notion left over from early generations. You see, there were many in the land that were not looking for Messiah anymore. (sighs) And you know, when we wonder how how did the people of God who read our Old Testament, how did they miss the identity of Christ as the Messiah when He comes on the scene? How did they miss it? That's to, that's to misunderstand, to ask that question is to misunderstand how how complex and how all over the map their expectations were. They were all over the map. Some were looking for a prophet. Some for a priest. Some for a king. Some, not at all. And what Matthew's about to tell us is that that prophet, that priest, and that king come wrapped together in one individual. That God the Father who remembers His promise, sends His Son into the world to redeem and to rescue and to reign and rule. If part one is a story of glory and power, if part two is a story of longing and lament, and if we mix these together and we're looking for something, verse 16 leaps off the page where Matthew says, This story that I'm telling you, it concludes right here with an announcement that the true king has come. If if this genealogy describes a rise to power and a loss of power, verse 16 points to the restoration of royal power. Jesse the father of David the king, verse 6. David is the king. Back to Isaiah. Back to the stump, just for a moment. In the face of spent hope and dashed dreams, writes Brian Zond, the prophet imagines a marvelous thing. Out of the dry stump, a green and a flourishing shoot begins to grow. The stump of Jesse's tree is not as dead as it seemed. From the royal line, hope will spring anew in the form of a new and anointed son of David. Verse 1, Matthew. Son of David. Eight centuries after, after Isaiah in his letter to believers in Rome, the Apostle Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the promised root of Jesse and the hope of the Gentiles. So, verse 16 And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Matthew is shouting to us to say that the descendant of David has come to take royal reigns once more. There's something else the author is doing that we will miss unless we step back into his world and his shoes and to read this as his first readers would have read it. Before the introduction of Arabic numerals, letters of the alphabet stood for numbers. And in Hebrew, written without vowels, David are the Hebrew letters for D, V, D. And numerically, those numbers represented were 4, 6, 4. 14. 14 generations. The original hearers would have heard that. We don't. But what the author is doing, he's putting a triple emphasis on the fact of Jesus' Davidic ancestry. The Davidic Messiah has come. And later on in Matthew, in, verse, in chapter 16, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, oh, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And with that, he's connected the dots. He's connected the dots that Matthew wants us to see. That Jesus, son of David, Messiah, has come in the flesh. He has come. Christmas is about the fact that He is come. But it's important to recognize that Jesus comes as King twice. He comes first in weakness, He comes first in weakness to a poor family in a stable. He comes in weakness and dies. The king dies. The king suffers. And he suffers not for his sin, but for yours. The king first comes in weakness, but he comes again and will come again in power in order to end all suffering, end all evil, end all death, We live between that coming and the first. That he is an almighty king who will come to subdue all his enemies and ours. Jesus, you see, will rule as king on earth when he returns. This is what we hear in Revelation. John's writing and says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. King who reigns and rules, he has come to you. It's not one more name. His is not just one more. His is the final name in the genealogy. His is the final name in, in all of history. His is the final name in your life. There's no other name to add to your life. <laughs> his name is added to you. You are his by faith, Christ one. As you come to Him, there's nothing to add to His name upon you. There's nothing to seek that He doesn't provide. There's nothing to hope for, to strive for, that you don't find in Him. His is the final name, the name above all names, as we cite Isaiah and the Apostle Paul. So application. Last week, if you were here, we learned that we need genealogical humility because we don't bring enough marbles to the table. We're broken. We need some humility about our own genealogy, our own history, our own story, our own makeup, our own character, but we come with humility. We We need humility, but we need a new genesis we heard last week. We need a new rebirth. But today, Matthew adds to that to say, it's not just a new, a new Genesis. You need a king. You need a king. You need a king. I need a king because we can't rule our own hearts. We can't make life work. But the one who made us for himself comes to us and gives us himself that we might find life in Him and joy and purpose. That's what Advent is about. It's about waiting, but the waiting has ended with the coming of Christ into this world. And we wait more for the second coming when He comes in power to wipe away every tear, to do away with death. That's the rest of the story. We need a king, but not just any king. If history tells us anything, if Matthew's genealogy tells us anything, we need a king whose rule and authority is righteous and good and merciful. That's the king that is ready to reign and rule in your life. We need one whose reign is lasting and eternal and powerful and is not undone. So act like a king. Act like you have a king because you do. Act like a king who lo- you have a king who loves you because he does. That's what Matthew wants you to hear. Act like you have a king because you do. Act like you have a king who loves you because he does. And as many of us heard sung so beautifully by a choir this past Thursday evening, wipe the stain of dust and exile from your worn and weary feet. Come with songs of glorious triumph. Come your Savior now to greet. For he comes your true Messiah, your anointed royal king. See him come in love and glory, endless joy for you he brings. Pray with me. Lord, we would ask that by your spirit that that story seep deeper into our lives, that we would find our story in that one that we long for things to be different in our own lives and in this world. And we belong by faith to a king who is, who is focused on making everything that is wrong in this world right. Who comes to us today to turn us right side up, to set our gaze in a, in a direction that is marked by beauty and, and glory, and wisdom. Lord, we come needy, but we come to one who is all-sufficient. By your Spirit, work that deeper into us today, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.